land is really important and most cities don't want to just have that be a space. They want it to be developed. They want people to shop there or pay more taxes on it. And so they're not really zoning that much more land in places for that. So it becomes valuable. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. I'm your host, Mike McManus, and we are here today with Darren Huang. I should have checked that before. How did I pronounce that right, Darren? (laughs) It's Huang, yes. Huang. Okay, thank you so much. Over the past seven years, Darren has bought over 100 residential units in Tulsa, Oklahoma, He got tired of the midnight calls, especially one from the police, and is now focused into commercial real estate, specifically industrial. He now has over 150,000 square feet of industrial space. He's been married for seven years and has a three-year-old and a one-year-old. Darren, welcome to the show. Yes. And that's actually unupdated. They're four and two now. So uh, Four and two. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's fun. They're fun at that age. Yes, they are. So tell me a little bit more about your journey here, because we've heard this one before. A lot of people, they start out in single family or multifamily and find out it can be a hassle. Yeah. So in 2016, I got licensed as a real estate agent. I was just doing B2B sales. I hated how my commission reset every single month. And so I said, hey, listen, let me try to work for myself, being very entrepreneurial. Got my license thinking that the brokerage path would be the route that I would take. So thinking that I would have a team underneath me, a buyer's agent, seller's agent, then maybe own like a brokerage. So have multiple people working underneath me. I thought that was a path that I wanted to take, but it wasn't until 2017, I actually picked up my first investor client and that really changed my world because it wasn't about the granite color. It wasn't about the wall color. It was about numbers. And so one for me, it was unlimited commission based on the deal. So I was just married at that point, no kids. So I had a lot of time. And then also I got to see a deal go full cycle and I wasn't even aware that the burst strategy was a thing. I just thought you would flip homes or just own them cash as rentals. And he kind of showed me that entire different world. Well, that's awesome. So now you got tired of all the hassles, a single family. It looks like you're mostly in warehouse and in the industrial sector. So what are the things that make this a great place to be? Yeah, yeah. So just kind of continuing that story, it really is one, two, skip a few, 99, 100. And just knowing just having all the time in the world and then having like just trying to take it all on yourself. I thought that I was a really great operator. I thought I was a really great property manager, leasing agent, et cetera. But at a certain point, you kind of burn out. The thing that really drew me into commercial real estate and specifically industrial is triple net leases. And so net, net, net stands for uh, you net the taxes, you net the insurance and you net all the maintenance and uh, capital expenditures. And so you're able to charge the tenant all those things where and usually for residential you have to pay your own property taxes you have to pay your own property insurance and then you have to if the toilet is clogged or you have to repair something that's on you versus it's completely different on the industrial and sometimes retail so triple net leases were really really great for me what's the difference in your interactions how many interactions you have and how those interactions are with your tenants now 
Yeah. So once again, you are really providing a service to your residential clients, I would say. They are your customers. And for your service of actually being a good landlord, a property manager, or property owner, they are due that just because they pay, in my opinion. Now, on the other side, commercial, it is very functional. It is business to business. And they want to make money and not just have a place to live or somewhere aesthetically pleasing. So I would say that I maybe get five to seven calls versus I get a call every single day, maybe two per day for the residential. So it is dramatically cut down. So you're talking five to seven calls a month, or is that a year? Maybe. <laughs> maybe. On some of them, they are a little bit faster moving. So my smaller bay is like I have 1,500 square feet. That is a little bit more hands-on just because that's on a year to year. So sometimes I have to update their things too, but I have an absolute triple net lease where I have not heard from them the whole entire year. And I just sent them a piece of mail saying they need to pay their taxes or insurance. And that's about it. That's all I do. That's awesome. So when you're talking about warehouse, and I think this is where most of the people we're talking to on this show are healthcare workers. And, and the idea of warehouse is, is like this maybe overwhelming thing like we've yeah. seen retail we've seen apartments but then a warehouse is like what the heck goes on in there and so there's lots of different warehouses there could be like these brand new amazon warehouses i'm in green bay south of milwaukee as you head towards chicago down mm -hmm. to some are older buildings that look pretty rough what's the difference between those when you're looking at them as an investor yeah. So another point that I really like about industrial real estate is actually the largest asset class in North America or United States per square foot. Now it's not the most expensive, it's not the most flashy, but it takes up the most amount of space. And with that, there's a lot of enigma that kind of comes into it. You see Amazon, you also see like a contractor bay, like I said, a 1500 square foot bay. Those are really, really different, but that's all shuffled within industrial real estate. So I kind of break down industrial real estate into three different categories. I'll just go over them and kind of give an example so that you have a kind of a clearer picture. So the categories are distribution and warehousing. So that's kind of the Amazon. There's manufacturing. So think of anything that has to get manufactured. And then third is flex space. So that really is a catch-all anywhere from medical research, like a research lab, or maybe a technology point where they have security systems and data centers and stuff like that, all the way to normally we think of as like almost a Sherwin-Williams type. So once again, distribution at the very top level, you have FedEx, you have Target, you have Macy's, you have USPS, all those things, which is just a really large 20 to 30 foot building that's just open that just all it does is transform pallets to your door so that's distribution at a very small level i have a small tenant that delivers hummus to their local grocery stores so it gets manufactured in texas shipped up here to tulsa and then from tulsa to the grocery stores so once again that's distribution the second one manufacturing that's exactly what you think it has to manufacture something so here in tulsa and i'm guessing in green bay and in wisconsin you have manufacturers so we have one milo's tea so they manufacture tea and lemonade for the consumers we also have kimberly clark that makes brands like charmin and bounty so paper products and then anything in between that at a lower level i have a small business that's e-commerce based, they make bath bombs and candles. So they manufacture that. And then obviously they have a distribution point in the back of it that they go direct to consumer. 
And the third one is Flex. I mentioned Sherwin-Williams. Sometimes they have a retail storefront, a couple like manufacturing points where they're mixing the paint and they're spinning it. And then warehouse in the back where they actually take the five gallon or 50 gallon drums of paint and going from there. So that's kind of a comprehensive look of all this industrial. And then once again, there's different levels all the way from the big corporations, billions, trillions of dollars, all the way down to the small business that I kind of mentioned. And you mentioned Kimberly Clark, because being in Green Bay, although in Green Bay, you hear a lot about the Packers and cheeseheads and cheese. <laughs> but one of my favorite things I learned when I moved to Green Bay is Green Bay was where the first splinterless toilet paper was developed, which if you think about that, that's a major step forward in civilization. That is a huge uh, step forward. <laughs> so, so a huge part of actually Green Bay is the paper industry still and a lot mm -hmm. of toilet paper, paper towels, cardboard boxes. So some of those big factories, that's where you're talking about that falls into that manufacturing, but all the way down to where you're even saying in flex space could be making candles. How big of a space does a candle plant require? Yeah. So this one is a pretty niche and I think they're in a little less than 3000 square feet. Okay. But once again, they're e-commerce based. So they have a small warehouse in the front that does all their mixing and manufacturing. And then they have all their inventory in a different one in the back and their offices are in between. So yeah, really great setup for them. That's a great description how it can go from these really large giant manufacturing or Amazon type warehouses all the way down to what's really kind of a mom and pop factory in a much smaller space. So we talked a little bit about like a brand new Amazon, that's a class A warehouse. So we're still using class A there, right? Compared to multifamily. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then class B, what would be a class B or a class C warehouse? Yeah, it's usually depicted by age. And so they built things very similarly because there wasn't Amazon that needed to put a door, put a package on your doorstep in two days. So class B really signifies anything from, let's say, 70s, 80s, 90s, even early 2000s. Um, usually they're characterized, they have a little bit shorter uh, ceiling height. They're not as big. They don't have the technology or the truck courts, different things along those lines. But what the benefit is that they're closer to in town, closer to population. And so class B is more of a description of age than it is like an actual condition, I would say. Okay. And is there C class or is it just A or B? Uh, yeah, C class is probably things that are on the verge of what's called functional obsolete. So once again, the need for pallet and robotics and forklifts and semi trucks and all this other stuff has been exploding in the past 20 years when Amazon was a thing and Amazon Prime was a thing. Let's just use that as the example. So class C, class D really is positioned, needs to be either creatively turned around or made maybe into smaller flex space types that you can kind of bunch out in different things. But once again, that's reflective of an age and usually ceiling height and condition too at that point, I would say. Okay. So when you're looking at some of these, and this is an area that's not my expertise, but I'm learning about. So when you're talking about your most valuable warehouses, door height's important. So you can bring in a full-size truck, mm -hmm. ceiling height. What would you consider a reasonable ceiling height to be a B or A class functional ceiling height? 
Yeah. And I'll just kind of go through all the categories because CBRE just did a survey to their tenants. I believe it was actually last year in 2022. They asked them what was really important when looking at space. And so first is the ceiling height. So how many pallets can I stack? How can I get raw materials in this place in an efficient manner if it's on the manufacturing? So ceiling height, how many doors does it have is the what's second a, category. Sorry, what's the ceiling height that would be considered Oh, yeah, yeah. high, you know, that nobody's going to be worried about it being too low? Yeah. So right now, Amazon is getting developed anywhere from 32 to 40 foot clear. So okay. anything below that, closer to 20 to 30, that would be considered class B, somewhere on there. It's very functional, very usable. 24 to 28 is very, very functional. My first warehouse I bought at 20 foot ceiling height. And then I do have some stuff that's fully climate controlled all the way at the 12 to 14. But as you can see, it really restricts. That's not a distribution play at all. They can't fit as many things in there as probably necessary. Okay. So then we're getting to doors. Yes. So the second most important thing was how many doors and the layout of how things transport and our egress, ingress, stuff like that. So there's two types of doors. There's a grade door and that's what's called a dock high door. So those are the two types. Grade door is like your garage door. You can drive into it. Sometimes there's a ramp up to it, but sometimes it's just flush to the ground. And then the dock high is exactly that. It's used for semis. Sometimes there's a leveler. Sometimes there's different things like that. But those doors, depending how small and big and how many, how they're laid out is really important for that user. Is one better than the other? Or does it just depend on what they need? Yeah, it just depends on what they need. Usually for distribution, I think the ratio is probably like 10 or 15 to one. So they really don't need that many grade doors because the access point is all docks and semis. Now, if you have an auto body shop, they don't really care for semi access. They want to drive their cars in and out of the lift. So it just depends. A good rule of thumb is that if you have a 10 by 10 is kind of just the most functional, they're smaller sizes, not really usable. 14, to 16 is really the magic number so that you can actually drive a semi through if you're to work on a semi truck. So 14, 16, kind of remember that. So really the bigger, the better, and then the more, the better, but then they have to functionally be laid out correctly too. Are there doors over 16 or is that kind of as high as you really need? Yeah. I mean, if you think of an airplane hangar, they have those big doors also. So really the sky's the limit, you know, pun intended. So those hangar doors are humongous. If you watched any movies like Top Gun, whatever, that is an industrial building also. And that is a classification of door. So yeah, I guess yeah. so. But, <laughs> but for the you most have to be part, functional. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part. Yeah. If you're talking <laughs> trucks, 16th is high as you're going to need, unless it's a special use, like for planes yeah, or some special like giant trucks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So beyond the ceiling height and door height, other considerations? Yeah. Yeah. So another one is heavy power. The potential next wave is going to be EV trucks or, you know, at least charging for people's electronic vehicles. Um, but heavy power is really necessary for machineries. That's probably more important on the distribution side, but also the manufacturing. They have heavy power. They have heavy machinery. They need a lot of that power. So if you don't have that power, guess what? You are completely eliminated. They're not even going to look and tour at your place. So having heavy power, I believe it was like 56% of people really need that. That okay. one's pretty self-explanatory. I think the next one on the list, number four, is room to expand in yard space. I think this has really taken a lot of people by storm and a lot of the investment world by storm. It's called industrial outside storage. But imagine trying to move a big operations like an Amazon warehouse from one place to another. That takes a lot of time. So I think a lot of people are looking, hey, we want the room to expand or we want the yard space to keep things even though we're not technically paying the price point per square foot. 
So yeah, that's pretty self-explanatory, I think. So is that something from an investor standpoint, if you're looking at a warehouse that's got significant additional developable acreage that makes that better because you can offer outside storage and it offers room to add more warehouse if they need it and they don't have to move? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I would say anywhere in a metro that has land is considerably more valuable just because especially as metro areas grow and grow and grow, you can find some acreage on the suburbs. But when you're trying to tap into workforce, when you're trying to tap into visibility and then being very close to your consumer, whether it be for manufacturing or like a tradesman or the actual to your doorstep kind of delivery, that all really is very big consideration. So um, yes, land is really important. And most cities don't want to just have that be a space. They want it to be developed. They want people to shop there or pay more taxes on it. And so they're not really zoning that much more land in town, in places for that. So it becomes valuable for some cities. Yeah, for some places. Okay. So if somebody were looking at buying warehouse space and you found warehouse in town, you know that that's going to be of higher value because it's hard to replace versus you can go build it on the edge of town, but it's going to be more valuable in town. Yeah, definitely. Considerations when people are looking for tenants are looking at a space, they want to look at the surrounding areas. How easy access is it? Is it close to an airport? Is it close to a highway? Is it close to a port if you're close to a body of water? Railroads too, if they use that for their transportation. And then second is the workforce. How far does a skilled workforce, especially in manufacturing, how far is the skilled workforce away from this area? If it's 40 minutes away, that's not a great site for them. If it's 15 minutes, they'll pay considerably more to have that 10-minute route than a 40-minute route, if that makes sense. Yeah, because that's part of their hiring process. If they can be in a location that people love living close to where they work versus having to drive 40 minutes to get there. Mm -hmm. And then also, just from statistic points, I wasn't planning on getting into this, but the most costly thing for a distribution like say Amazon, we'll just use them as a blanket, but it's Target, it's Walmart, it's everybody to get on your doorstep. That is the most expensive part from the final destination to your doorstep. And so say they're only paying, a statistic came out once again, real estate cost for distribution is only three to 6% of their total cost. The rest is gasoline, transportation, and workforce and the higher there. So they will pay six to seven percent or even a one percent more than they're paying so that they can dramatically decrease the workforce cost and the last to your doorstep cost too so they don't mind paying one percent more to then save five percent on gasoline and fuel cost so that core being in town and being close to the doorsteps are really important to them so that whole distribution process this one's a little bit new to me Like we said, we're in Green Bay, so down between Milwaukee and Chicago, down towards the Illinois border, there's a giant new Amazon warehouse. One of these ones that you drive by and you're driving by it for a while and you're still driving by it for a while. (laughs) Yeah. So after the stuff leaves, so what goes on in that warehouse? Is that where it's just coming from all over? Is that for distribution like Chicagoland and Milwaukee or what's going on in the giant warehouse? This is just a complete guess. What I'm 
going to guess is since it's not close to that, what's called the last mile delivery, that's probably a distribution center. So a lot of that goods come there, then they go to a separate smaller facility. And then from there, they get loaded up on the trucks to your doorstep. So most likely it's a very strategic position in between Milwaukee, Chicago, Illinois to be able to do that. But that is the second to last stop and maybe third to last stop. Okay, third to last stop. How many stops do they have before that one? I'm just in understanding warehouse is trying to understand distribution, maybe a little more. I don't know if this yeah. is outside of Yeah, this. I would say I'm guessing at this point, uh educated <laughs> okay. guess, especially for that facility. But it's kind of crazy to think the actual journey of even a simple thing like a marker to your doorstep. If you just kind of backtrack it, okay, this marker was in a cardboard box. It went to the distribution center. Then it went to probably another center, but then it was imported from the port of LA. So then it was on a ship and then it went back to China and then it was in a manufacturing thing from China. So, I mean, that's relatively very short and condensed, but then even the cap for this was maybe manufactured in somewhere else. And then the tip for that and the ink for that was all put assembled in a place in China, or I don't know if this was made in China or the United States, but if you can kind of think there's probably 16 different parts that came together in a factory, that factory then went to the port, that port then went to the ship to the port of LA. And then that went to another warehouse, then to another warehouse, and maybe to that last distribution center, then to your doorstep. So okay, succinctly put, that's kind of the distribution chain, if you will. And that helps. So from that big warehouse, you know, Mm -hmm. down there, How many stops are there before it gets to my door in Green Bay? Yeah, maybe two more stops, maybe one. So I don't know how far away it is from you, but sometimes if it goes to that, yeah. Okay, so then yeah, probably two or three stops. So it might go from that large one. It goes up two to three hours, then goes to the distribution center there. Then it goes to that last mile delivery, and then it goes to your doorstep. So yeah, maybe two or three. So that was a really big warehouse, like we were saying. Yeah. So then the next one, so we have the one in between and a last mile, let's just say. Mm-hmm. So the one in between, how big is that warehouse? Um, you know, once again, not knowing Green Bay, how large it is. If Green that Bay was 300,000 Metro. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I'll just kind of speak to Tulsa. If let's say that was three hours away from Tulsa, Tulsa has one plant that's on the West side. It's a DC. And so that one is, I believe 400,000 square feet. So I'm so- guessing the one that is three hours away is millions square feet, maybe even more. So million down to 300 to 400, maybe yours, since you're a little bit smaller is 200 to 300. Then it might go to, that might directly ship from there. So I know that they do last mile from that, but if it doesn't, then it goes to the one in Broken Arrow where I'm at. And that one's only like 60,000 square feet, but they also use a lot of like USPS and FedEx people as subcontractors. So that might go somewhere else and then it goes to my door. The last step for somebody big like Amazon is still 30, 40,000 square feet. Yeah, That's yeah, maybe. Done. That one okay. is very small. The Amazon in Broken Arrow is only 60,000. Okay. I would say it's probably going to be 100 plus. That's probably what makes sense to them. 100 okay. plus thousand square feet, yeah. So if we're looking at somebody who's not as big as Amazon, <laughs> do they have the same distribution type thing that's smaller or are they like using Amazon or somebody else for that shipping for that last mile where it gets delivered? Yeah. So they're usually either using Amazon as a third party fulfillment. They're sometimes using USPS or FedEx for that last mile. And so it just depends on the e-commerce and different things like that. 
Yeah, I would say they're most likely using third party in that aspect. And a lot of that third party logistics, 3PLs as they're called, have been gobbling up space. So it's not just like Amazon, but it's also they're contracted out for other things too. So 3PLs. Okay, awesome. Darren, this has been so awesome. And we're going to wrap up this part of the show. And Darren's going to be back for another episode. And I want to get into more some of this. Now we see warehouse clusters and learn more about that. So thank you so much for being here. And we'll be back for the next one. Please join us again on Surgeon Syndicate. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you found value in this episode, no other surgeons are hungry to become job optional. You can help them by sharing this content today. I also want to serve you better, so I want to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you can take a moment and leave an honest review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. And number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help schedule a call we can make a plan looking forward to having you with me on the next episode